Today's reading of the word is from Isaiah 11, 1 through 10. It's projected behind me and on page 10 as well. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And and he shall strike the earth with a rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness, the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf of the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in my holy mountain, for the earth shall be the full knowledge of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. In, the day, the root of, in that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him, shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Cameron. Okay, uh, kids, you can find the Trinity Kids Bulletin, and here are the three things to listen for. I want you to listen for... Uh, illustration about a tree stump. Uh, And then secondly, a quote from uh, the hymn, This is My Father's World. And finally, uh, an illustration about a zoo. So tree stump, this is my father's world and a zoo. So with that, let me uh, me pray for us as we look to this passage together. Father, we ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts together would be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Lord, we thank you that your word is living and active, that it's sharper than any two-edged sword, and that it divides down to uh, the spirit uh, and the uh, spirit and soul. And Lord, we thank you, Lord, for the way that you are at work when your word is proclaimed. And so we pray that this afternoon uh, we would see your son Jesus more clearly. Uh, We pray that we would behold him in his glory and his beauty and that we would be drawn to him even as we uh, experience the love that he has for us. And we pray this all in his name, amen. I mentioned that I got some pushback on my favorite Christmas list or favorite Christmas movie list a couple weeks ago. None of that pushback was stronger than this text that I received. Been fun respecting you the last few years, but since you neglected to mention It's a Wonderful Life in your Christmas movie spiel on Sunday, all that is over. May God grant you repentance. It'd be inappropriate for me to tell you that it was Bradford Green that sent that text, so I won't do that. (laughs) But uh, after spending a couple of weeks in uh, in sackcloth and ashes, it's time to talk about It's a Wonderful Life, all right? Uh, So as you might know, uh, It's a Wonderful Life uh, came out in 1946, and uh, it actually didn't do very well in the theaters. It was uh, was nominated for a bunch of Academy Awards, five actually, and, uh, and it ended up becoming, obviously, uh, an incredibly loved movie. Uh, where many will say uh, it is the best Christmas movie. There are a lot of people, though, like this one who sent me the text, who would say, 
this is actually possibly the greatest movie made of all time. And there are a lot of reasons for that, a lot of reasons the movie is, is so beloved. One of them is this, though. Uh, it paints an incredibly vivid picture of what it feels like to be hopeless. And so everybody identifies with George Bailey at the beginning of this movie. If you've ever felt any sense of hopelessness, where he had had these, these great hopes of becoming an architect that doesn't work out because his father dies. He ends up having to take over this family uh, building and loan company. The, the financial problems stack up over and over. And then he gets to a point where he feels like he's failed everyone. And he feels completely hopeless in that spot. And I read an article this week that had some quotes with an interview that Jimmy Stewart had done in 1987. And he was describing some of what had happened even in the filming of this movie. And so here's what he says. He says, in one scene, at the lowest point in George Bailey's life, Frank Capra was shooting a long shot of me slumped in despair. In agony, I raise my eyes and following the script, plead, God, God, dear Father in heaven, I'm not a praying man, but if you're up there and you can hear me, show me the way. I'm at the end of my rope. Show me the way, God. And here, here's what he says about that. He says, as I said those words, I felt the loneliness, the hopelessness of people who had nowhere to turn and my eyes filled with tears. I broke down sobbing. That was not planned at all. And I think that that is a great picture of the kind of ache and the kind of longing that's at the heart of Advent. So uh, Tish Harrison Warren uh, puts it this way. This is in the front of your bulletin. She says this about Advent. To practice Advent is to lean into an almost cosmic ache, our deep wordless desire for things to be made right and the incompleteness we find in the meantime. We dwell in a world still racked with conflict, violence, suffering, darkness. Advent holds space for our grief. And it reminds us that all of us, in one way or another, are not only wounded by the evil in the world, but are also wielders of it, contributing our own moments of unkindness or impatience or selfishness. And I love that quote because it, I think it does a great job of getting at that deep longing that every single one of us feels for things to be made right. And here's the thing about that. It is so easy when you feel that ache and that longing to start feeling hopelessness in that place. And that's exactly where Israel finds themselves in this passage, in a place where they feel hopeless. Here's what happens though. In the middle of that hopelessness, God speaks these words of hope. And the hope in this passage comes in the form of the coming of the one who is called the root of Jesse. And here's the thing about that. He's the source of their hope. But the point for us to see is that he's the source of our hope too. And so a part of what I want us to notice about this passage is this. It's that the only hope that you and I have of this world being made right is in the coming of the root of Jesse. He's the only one who can do what our hearts long for. And so I want to look at this passage uh, under three headings. Uh, first, the, the righteousness of the root of Jesse. Secondly, the reign of the root of Jesse. And then thirdly, the restoration of the root of Jesse. So righteousness, reign, and restoration. So first, uh, the righteousness of the root of Jesse. A uh, little bit of context here. Uh, if you're with us last week, we were looking at Isaiah 7. And we were looking some at, uh, at King Ahaz, who was the king of Judah, and, and how 
he, in the face of being attacked by these other nations, turned to Assyria. And so uh, he, he looked for, for Assyria to be the one to come to his rescue and protection. What ended up happening, though, is that rather than protecting Judah and God's people from that attack, is that Assyria instead overran them, totally desolated them. But what Isaiah says is that he, he speaks these words of comfort to Judah, and he tells them in chapter 10 that judgment is coming for Assyria. Not only is that going to occur, but though a lot of people are going to turn away from the Lord in this, God is going to preserve this remnant, this faithful remnant. And so what he does is he, he describes God's people as being like a tree with branches. So there, there are going to be some of these who are unfaithful branches who are chopped off. And in fact, this whole tree is going to get chopped down to this stump, this faithful stump. And so this is what is said in Isaiah 6. It's going to be like an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. That's some of the context here. So verse one, what Isaiah says is that it's gonna be from that stump of Jesse that this shoot, or later on he says this branch, is gonna come forth. So a few things to notice about this branch. The first thing is just to notice this language of a stump. So if you think about it, that is a really vivid picture to, to, to show how hopeless Israel was. So if you think about uh, the, the stump of a tree after it's been chopped down, it looks dead and it looks lifeless. And, and that's what's supposed to be conveyed about Israel's situation. They are dead and they are lifeless. What Isaiah says, though, is that God is actually going to bring life out of that which looks lifeless. So uh, at our old house, we had this huge oak tree uh, in the front of our house, and we could tell right when we moved in uh, that this thing was not doing very well. There were branches that were falling off. Branch actually fell on top of our house at one point. It's another story for another time. Uh, but what actually ended up happening uh, with this uh, tree that looked dead is that these small green shoots started to come forth, started to sprout out of this little tree, or this big tree. And what God is saying is that he's gonna bring life from this stump that looks dead. And the way that he's gonna do that is through what he calls the root of Jesse. And it's actually pretty significant that, that he, he describes the root as a root of Jesse and not the root of David. So why would he say that? Well, uh, because all other kings were referred to as being of David. Part of the deal with that though is that most of these kings were really bad kings, like Ahaz. And so part of what's happening here is that Isaiah is saying that there's one coming, this Lord's Messiah, who is gonna be a new and greater David. And one of the reasons that he's gonna be different from all of these other failed kings is because he's gonna be empowered by the Spirit in a way these other kings weren't. And that's what he says in verse two. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Here's what's important about that. In the Bible, that's the way that the spirit equips kings to do their work. And so this is actually what's said of David. This is 1 Samuel 16. He says, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Here's the difference, though. This Messiah is going to do what all the other kings failed to do. What God's spirit is gonna do here is to give him this kind of wisdom in order to see things the way they really are. 
He's not gonna be a king that, that, that's swayed by his circumstances. He's not gonna be one who fears other nations. Instead, what he says in verse three is that his delight is gonna be in the fear of the Lord. So Isaiah is saying that the, the root of Jesse is gonna be this true king, that, that this coming Messiah, the one that these people were longing for but had never seen. And, and he's gonna be the kind of king that can do every single thing that they need him to do and to be. And so a part of what that means is that the root of Jesse is the only one who can bring the, this rescue and this restoration that they've been longing for. And that also means that, that looking anywhere else, whether that, that's to these other kings like Ahaz did or, or to even to their own power, is not gonna work. That these are all false hopes. So how does that apply to us? Well, I would say it this way. What it means is that we are in a situation like Israel that we can't fix. It means that, that, that we are in a situation such that, that, that there is something that is so broken about our world and that there is so, something so broken about you and I that we can't fix it. And, and here's the thing about that. We hate that. We hate that because in general, we are a very capable people in this room. We are the kind of people who are the fixers, the ones who are, who are the problem solvers, and we're really good at that kind of work. And so when you bump up against something that you are powerless to fix, it can undo us. But the, 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 the people who, who I think most beautifully are, are those who come to terms with that sense of power, powerlessness are those who have been in some kind of recovery community. So one of, my, uh, one of my favorite books is Frederick Buechner's Telling Secrets. And uh, part of what he does in this, it's one of his memoirs, one of the things that he describes is his daughter's struggle with an eating disorder. And uh, as is the case with so many eating disorders, um, it, it totally ravaged her. And so it, it ended up where Buechner himself was in a 12-step program and support group for this. And he says that it was there that he finally realized that he was powerless to save her that he was helpless to do anything that his daughter ultimately needed. And he describes this as being, on the one hand, completely devastating because he was powerless. And at the same time, he realized that, this is the, that the only hope for her to be healed, that the only hope for things to be made right in their family was gonna have to come from somewhere else. You see, what, what Isaiah says here is that that somewhere else is the root of Jesse this promised root of Jesse, that he's the one who is able, that he, he's the one who really can rescue you, that he is the one that Israel needs and he is the one that you and I need. So that, that's the righteousness of this root of Jesse. So what, what uh, Isaiah does then in the middle part of this passage is to describe some of what his reign is gonna look like. What's gonna look like when he rules? So secondly, uh, the reign of the root of Jesse. And just a couple things to highlight. One is this, Isaiah says that the root of Jesse is gonna rule with justice. Verse four, with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. So uh, th this is actually a, a way that, that kings all over the ancient world would have talked. They would have given lip service to this kind of care and protection of the poor and the oppressed. And they, they were to make sure that they weren't gonna get taken advantage of. What actually happened though, is that it was the wealthy, it was the influential, it was the powerful 
who ended up getting some kind of preferential treatment. And usually that worked at the expense of the poor. What Isaiah is saying is that the rule of the Messiah is going to be different. That he's actually going to be one who brings true justice for the poor and for the abused and the neglected and the oppressed. And he's going to do what's right. But here's the thing about that. If he's going to make sure that the poor and the abused and the oppressed are protected, that part of what that means is that he's going to have to stop those who are perpetrating this evil against them. That's what he says in the second half of verse 4. So secondly, the root of Jesse is also going to judge the wicked. Verse 4. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. And I I realize uh, on the surface, you read a passage like that, and it can make you a little bit uncomfortable. And I think we we, we come to, to passages like this sometimes, and we don't really know what to do with them. Here's what I want you to do for a moment, though. I want you to step back for a moment and consider this. What I want to suggest to you is that you and I desperately want and need a God who's going to bring real justice. That we actually want a God who really does judge the wicked, who really will stand against this kind of evil. And so let let me try to illustrate it this way. Uh, There were a number of us this week who were at uh, an Andrew Peterson concert. And um, one of the ministries that he he loves and that he's a big advocate for is International Justice Mission. And IJM's main focus is to eliminate modern day slavery. And I think probably like me, you hear that and you think like that probably wouldn't be as big of a problem now as it was, I don't know, 500 years ago or something like that. But but the, the numbers though of modern day slavery are staggering. Here here are the numbers. There are currently 50 million people enslaved today, right now. And a huge percentage of those are women and children. And and most of the time this comes in in some kind of uh, form of forced labor, but a huge part of it's sex trafficking as well. And so, so here's what I want you to think about. What would you want to say to someone who is currently being trafficked? Who would you like to, to, or what would you want them to know about the God of the Bible? What I think probably all of us would say is that you would want them to know that the God of the Bible sees them, that he's not forgotten them, that he sees this evil being done against them and that he absolutely despises it, that he is completely opposed to it and that one day he's gonna do something about it. That's what Isaiah says about this coming king. That when he comes, he is going to pronounce this sentence of judgment. That's the the, the significance of this words of his mouth, the rod of his lips. This judgment against the wicked. And the reason that he's going to do that is because he is completely committed to restoring this world to what it's supposed to be. He's absolutely committed to righting all wrongs and to rescuing his people. So then what, what does that mean for you and for me? Well, what it means is that this is a king that you can trust. That this is a king that you can trust to do what's right every single time. That you never have to question, that you never have to doubt. That he's one who sees those who are oppressed. He sees those who are abused. And he's not going to stand for it. He is opposed to it. 
And it's because he is, in the words of verse five, righteous and faithful. And I think that that is so important for us to know and to believe, especially when you can't see it. Especially when you think about the 50 million people who are enslaved right now. There's a, uh, the, the, there's a hymn that we're gonna sing in a bit, This Is My Father's World. And there's a, this wonderful line in that hymn that says, and though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. And what Isaiah says in this chapter is that there is a day coming when that wrong is gonna be made right. And it's gonna come when the root of Jesse comes. And what he does in the final section of this passage is to describe what's gonna happen in this world when the root of Jesse comes. So thirdly, the restoration of the root of Jesse. So what's gonna happen when the root of Jesse ascends to the throne? What we could describe it is in this way. Every single thing will be restored to what it's supposed to be. This world that has been so broken and marred by the fall is gonna be healed. And so the, the way that Sally Lloyd-Jones puts it, paraphrasing Tolkien in the, uh, in the Jesus Storybook Bible, is that it's gonna be a day when everything sad will come untrue when the, the, the curse of sin is gonna be finally removed and the creation itself that has been groaning under the curse is gonna be set free. It's gonna be a day where, where the, the, the violence, the conflict, the strife, the war, all those things that, that we are so used to are gonna be fully and finally washed away and healed. It's gonna be a day where, where this peace and justice reign. And the way that, that, that Isaiah describes that is through the lens of all these relationships that are normally characterized by violence and that are instead gonna become peaceful. And so if you look at verses six through eight, this is what he says. He says that the, the, all these animals that he says here that are usually attacking one another aren't gonna do that anymore. So the wolf is gonna dwell with the lamb, the leopard with a goat, the uh, calf and a lion together. So kids, here's what I want you to do for a moment. I want you to think about the last time that you went to the Fort Worth Zoo. And I want you to think back to the time where you were maybe walking by the leopard cage. Did you see any young goats in there? You didn't, did you? Or maybe, uh, maybe the lions, like some fattened calves running around in the lion's den. Or uh, some cows in with the bears. Of course you didn't see that, right? Or picture this for a moment. Picture a, a young child playing around with poisonous snakes. It sounds wild, right? But the, the, the point is this. What Isaiah is doing is he's giving us this picture of peace that's gonna characterize the entire world when the Messiah returns. And so it's, it's this picture of the entire world being made new. When all of the fear, all of the danger all of the evil, all of the broken, all of the sinful parts of this world are gonna be gone. And the reason for that is verse nine. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That is the promise that God is making to Israel. That is the hope that they have to cling to here. And he says it's gonna come through this root of Jesse. Here's the deal though. Obviously, the promise of that coming king was still a long way off. So here's what we'll do. Fast forward 700 years. Jesus has just been baptized by John the Baptist. And here's what Matthew says happened. 
the Spirit of, the, of God descended on him like a dove and rested upon him. And then in Luke's gospel, where, where Jesus begins his ministry, he comes into the synagogue, he stands up, he's handed the scroll of Isaiah 61, and he reads this, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. He hands it back, sits down and says this, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. See, the, the true root of Jesse has come. And it is that true root of Jesse, Jesus himself, our king, that gives us this ultimate hope, our only ultimate hope that this world is gonna be made right. Here's the deal though. That king has come, but this world still doesn't look like what Isaiah says it will. And that is so, so hard. And there's a sense in which we're actually in a situation that's not as different from Israel's where we have this incredible promise that Jesus is gonna come in his second advent and that when he does, he is gonna wipe every tear from our eyes. He's gonna make this world new. It's gonna be something that is more glorious than we could possibly imagine. And yet, that has not happened. And so here's the real question. What difference, if any, does the hope, that future hope of that promise make to me right now? In other words, how does that Advent hope help us now? How is this not just some sort of future by and by sort of hope? So let me, let me try to answer it this way. Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, is a name that some of you for sure will know. Uh, he was a German pastor during the Nazi regime. He actually went back into Germany when things got really bad in order to go pastor his people. And uh, what eventually happened is that he was imprisoned and, and it happened to be that he was imprisoned during Advent before he was eventually executed. So he wrote a bunch about Advent while in prison. And he said this, life in a prison cell may well be compared to Advent. One waits, hopes, does this, that, or the other. The door is shut and can only be opened from the outside. Then he later wrote this though, look up you whose eyes are heavy with tears and who are crying over the fact that the earth has gracelessly torn us away. Look up, you who burdened with guilt cannot lift your eyes. Look up, your redemption is drawing near. God will come. So what, what sustained Bonhoeffer in that prison is the certain hope that it will not always be this way that God one day will open that door that has shut in front of us. And on that day, all of the sorrow and all of the hopelessness of your broken relationships, all of the, the despair of your dashed dreams, all of the horror of death itself, of leukemia, of cancer, is gonna be fully and finally healed. That day is coming. It's absolutely certain. And so we cling to that hope by keeping our eyes fixed on a king who is coming. And so the question then is how can we be sure that that's really coming? How can we be sure that our king will come for us in the end? We can be sure because he's already come once for us.
And so one of the hymns that, that we sing that, uh, during this time of year is that Jesus came, that he came to earth to taste our sadness. He came to earth to taste our sadness. This root of Jesse is one who experienced suffering, torment, judgment for our sin and of all the sin of the world. And yet three days after that, he rose from the dead. And it's the resurrection of the root of Jesse that guarantees that he will one day come again. And as Isaiah says, when he does, it'll be glorious. It'll be a day when the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord, just as the waters cover the sea. So let me, uh, let me close with this. So I mentioned that interview where Jimmy Stewart's describing what happened that was totally unplanned. As he prays that prayer, he, he's broken down and he's weeping and sobbing. He says, that was not planned at all. Here's how that quote ended. He says, but the power of that prayer, the realization that our Father in heaven is there to help the hopeless, had reduced me to tears. You see, that is our Advent hope. The Father has sent the root of Jesse to help the hopeless. And he's the one who has come. And praise God, he is the one who will one day come again. That is our Advent hope, and it is, a, it is as certain as his first Advent for us. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we do thank you that you are a God who has come for us and that you have come for us by sending your son. And Lord, we thank you that one day your son, the root of Jesse, our true king and Messiah will come again for us. And so Father, we pray with John in the end of Revelation that Lord Jesus, you would come quickly to us. Oh Lord, we long for your return. We long for you to make this world right. We long for you to wipe every tear from our eyes. And so, Lord Jesus, we pray that as we wait for you, you would sustain our hope, that you would do so by the work of your spirit, and that we would be those who watch and pray, and that we would do so expectantly, knowing that you will come for us. And we pray this all in your name. Amen.